0: Hello and welcome to the Meningitis Foundation New Zealand podcast. We aim to provide you with easy to understand information about meningitis and septicemia and the diseases that cause them, mainly pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. Today I'm speaking with Dr Helen Petusis harris of the University of Auckland to explore pneumococcal and meningococcal meningitis in New Zealand. Dr Patricia Harris has worked in the biological sciences all her life. She did a PhD in vaccinology, specifically around vaccine reactions. She worked at the Immunisation Advisory Centre at the University of Auckland between 1998 and 2018, where she's developed a passion for all things vaccine. Currently, Helen has an appointment as a senior lecturer in the Department of General Practice and Primary Healthcare, and her teaching is largely around vaccination. Her research focuses on vaccine effectiveness and vaccine safety. She's a member of the World Health Organisation Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety and the Brighton Collaboration Science Board. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, before we jump in and talk vaccines, can you give us a little bit of an overview and set the scene with regard to what meningitis, meningococcal and pneumococcal diseases actually are?
1: I guess they've got um, two, different, two different bugs and they each cause some similar patterns of disease. So, for example, meningitis is is the one we talk about the most, I guess, but also uh, each of them can cause a range of other diseases as well. So it can start to get quite complicated. So I think it's much easier uh, when we talk about it to talk about the different, the different bugs, um,
0: which I think helps to understand them. So, specific, specifically to talk about pneumococcal or meningococcal? Yes, that's the easiest. So. Mm. Okay. So, when we talk about um, who is at risk of contracting either pneumococcal or meningococcal, different population groups, obviously, can you tell us a little bit about that? I guess the
1: first thing is is age. So um, as with many diseases, we see the burden in the younger age groups for both of those diseases. Um, With meningococcal, you you see most of the disease clustered in the under fives with another little blip in the um, adolescent period. With pneumococcal, you you see it under five, but more towards the, the younger children, say under one to two years. And then you see it again in the older age groups as well in the elderly so there's slightly different patterns in terms of age and then of course there's the um we we see different patterns in different ethnic groups uh, again unfortunately with many diseases in New Zealand there's a, a burden in Māori and Pacific children with both these diseases and then there's the issue of overcrowding of course these are infectious diseases so uh, the more you put people together and close together, the, the better they spread. So that's a factor as well, I guess. So those would be some key factors involved in, in, risk, in the risk for these diseases.
0: And there's always going to be outliers, the cases of meningococcal in somebody in their 30s or 40s as well. They... Yeah. That, I mean, these diseases can affect anybody.
1: And when you look at the, the uh, epidemiology uh, in New Zealand, Every age group is affected. It's just that you see um, you just see clusters in, in these in these different groups, and especially towards the younger age groups. But it's very democratic, and uh, just because you're
0: in the very lowest risk group, it still means that you can be affected. Right, no discrimination whatsoever. Not really, no. And when you mention the overcrowding population, that also then sparks in my mind the the number of cases that we've seen in. Um, halls of residence or university accommodation. That's not just limited to a particular demographic where there's multi-generational housing, I understand.
1: No, not at all. And I guess there's a number of factors involved when we think about the the halls of residence. You've, you've got young people who've had a sudden change in their situation. Uh, they are living... Uh, in, in closer quarters with others but also there's probably some lifestyle things going on as well uh, such such as um, later nights, maybe they're not eating as well, maybe they're smoking um, sharing First a bit more spat I mean, you know, <laughs> These are infectious diseases, the more you get together, the more they like to spread
0: So what are the and within each of the diseases there are strains as well, so there's obviously spikes of which strains are more prevalent at any particular time. Yeah, that's right. so so for
1: example, with with the meningococcus we've got uh, we've got meningococcal group A, B, c, W, and y will be the major groups. And in New Zealand we're not really affected by all of those groups. But each of those groups will require a different vaccine in a way, or you, you'll need to make sure that if you want to cover the disease that you have, you need to have the right match with the vaccines. And then when it comes to the pneumococcus, there's a phenomenal number of different serotypes, So, but not all of them are a problem. So the, the vaccines target those serotypes, which are the, the biggest problem uh, in, say, the countries where the vaccine is is marketed. So we started with the seven top seven serotypes and then um, sort of the next sort of 10 to 13 serotypes. Um, so the vaccine sort of got broader and broader. So there's maybe 90 serotypes, but most of them are not a problem.
0: So talking about the vaccines, if we just talk about pneumococcus to start with. The pneumococcal vaccine is now part of the immunisation schedule for all children. Does that, what number of strains does that one actually cover? Uh, well, that's actually a really good question because New Zealand's flip flopped
1: uh, from a vaccine that has uh, 10, covers 10, to one that includes 13. And um, while the numbers sound slightly different, actually the vaccines are both pretty pretty well equal. They're both just as good as each other. So, um, But by and large, that covers most of the disease
0: in, in New Zealand, mm-hmm. not all of it. And vaccinating children, is that in any way protecting that older population that you said was also susceptible to pneumococcus? Uh, a little bit.
1: We haven't seen such a large impact on the older population as they have, for example, in the United States, where they really saw quite a dramatic impact on the older m- members, uh, usually the grandparent age. They saw quite a, a large impact there, whereas in New Zealand, we haven't seen that uh, so much. Uh, why that is, I- I'm not entirely sure.
0: So all those children are able to receive the vaccine free of charge from the government? Yes, now, that's not the case with meningococcal, though, is it? No. So can you talk us through the vaccines that are available, what they target, and who, who should actually be protected by them?
1: So we have available to us in our, our current arsenal, should we say, uh, there's a number of vaccines, but really, I think the ones of most interest are what we call a, a quadrivalent, so it, it covers four types. So that covers A, C, W, and Y. And um, until recently, there was really no option for Group B. However, we now have a vaccine against Group B, and that's I mean that's a really interesting story in itself, actually. But but the vaccine against Group B is now available in New Zealand as well. So we've got we've got it all covered. Mm-hmm but not in one vaccine. We need two vaccines to cover the disease that we have. So in New Zealand, primarily we have Group B and Group C, and we've seen uh, some
0: outbreaks of Group W. Right. Now we'll get to the W in just a minute because New Zealand's got a little bit of a history with the B vaccine, and or oh, sorry, the B infection. And there was an outbreak in the late 90s, early 2000s. Was that right? with a Meningococcal B. We yes, New Zealand had a
1: devastating uh, epidemic that ran from the nineteen nineties through to the sort of the early the first decade of the the two thousands, and it, it was a problem because it was it was Group B, and at the time there was no vaccine globally against Group B, and there's a reason a reason for that. Group Group B um, has been a challenge because. The part of the bug that we usually make meningococcal vaccines out of, in the case of group B, it actually is quite similar to uh, something that's smeared all over your brain. So, <laughs> so first of all, you don't want to be provoking an immune response against that, and mm. second of all, it's very—you you probably wouldn't mount an immune response because that's um, you've deleted all the uh, immune uh, immune cells that can. Attack your brain tissue, <laughs> I guess. So, so that wasn't a place to go. So, so really, there was no option um, that could address Group B in general. But in the case of New Zealand, as with a few other countries, our Group B outbreak was caused by what they called like a clone. So, instead of a whole lot of different Group Bs, most of the disease was caused by one. Like a clone, and that meant it was possible to make a, a tailor-made vaccine against this, called an outer membrane vesicle vaccine. And it really just it takes a chunk from the outside of the of the bug, called a, a vesicle, a little a little bit that blebs out on the outside of the bacteria, and is, and so it turns that into the vaccine. And that's been uh, approach has been taken before very successfully in Cuba. And also uh, Norway uh, developed a a similar vaccine successfully. So what New Zealand did was develop, um, with a big collaboration with with lots of multinational organisations like the WHO, you know, the the pharmaceutical industry, the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, along with New Zealand's ministry, University of Auckland and, uh, and ESR, developed a, a vaccine based on the Norwegian vaccine that was tailor-made to our epidemic. So that's where that vaccine came from, but it, it was really considered only useful for that particular. For that particular and it took a while to develop it, to test it, and then to roll it out. And by the time it was rolled out, our epidemic, after about f- a 15-year rampage, thousands of cases... Um, and which devastated so many sort of lives and and, and the lives of their families. Um, finally, when it came, that epidemic was on the wane anyway. Mm-hmm. So it made a difference, but but not
0: not as big a difference as it might have if it had come earlier, right? And those people that were vaccinated as part of that response to that epidemic. Aren't necessarily protected against any other form or the meningococcal B that we're seeing at the moment.
1: No, um, probably not. I, I, first of all, they would have they received protection against um, generally the 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 target um, strain of disease, but also, and this is the case with all meningococcal vaccines, the protection that's induced is not long lasting you make, um, you make a, a lovely immune response and you make a good memory. So you've got a good memory to that. But in the case of meningococcal disease, it moves so fast so that when people get an infection um, and their antibodies in their blood have waned, so even though they've got other types of immunity sitting there waiting uh, to, you know, for the day, <laughs> um, it's not fast enough. So if your antibodies in your blood have waned, which it does over a few years, you might not be protected anymore. And what you would need would be a booster dose of vaccine to maintain that protection. So unfortunately, no, immunity's not... uh, Or should we say, immunity is probably lifelong. You remember it, but you're not necessarily prepared... Able to fight it. um, ...quick enough because of the the really fast... uh, Mm-hmm. onset of this disease. Whereas other slower moving diseases, you've got time to get get yourself into gear. This, you might have 24 hours and
0: that's just... And that's one of the characteristics of pneumococcal and meningococcal disease, isn't it, as to how fast it actually can impact an individual. Really, really quick. And
1: that's a big ask of the immune system sometimes when, when it's been sitting quietly there, uh, unbothered by these organisms for a while, to suddenly... Uh, recall this and, and um, act fast enough. So that is one of the challenges to maintain uh, the protective antibodies in a
0: person's blood long-term is, is, is you know, quite a challenge. So we have a mange b um, vaccine that's available now and it's obviously on the private market, so it's not funded by the government. Mm-hmm. Who should be getting vaccinated for meningococcal B? I think, um, well, I think... He, probably need to consider
1: both both types of vaccines we've got if you want to cover your, you know, you, you want coverage for the types that are uh, uh, really circulating in New Zealand. So, you, so that's the B. You, you really need two vaccines. And if you were to ask me which one should I have, I'd be thinking, well, both over 50. Yeah, it's a bit of a 50-50 split. Um, I'm thinking, you know, based on emerging data, that the Group B vaccine is quite looking, it's looking like it's quite broadly protective. So it does protect beyond uh, just Group B. We know that. um, How far beyond, you know, we're we're still waiting for more data. But that's looking like a, a very broadly protective vaccine. So that's great. The other, you've got four types in there. Um, and we know that it's effective against those four types. So mm-hmm. I think it's, that's a really difficult... Um,
0: so that's the A, C, W, and Y. A, C C, w, is very popular in, or prevalent in New Zealand. It is. <laughs> it and is. The W, we're seeing an emerging spicy. number of cases. Can you talk a little bit about what we've seen over the years with the emergence of the W? Um, we've had some... The patterns in New Zealand uh, have gone...
1: Uh, Group A outbreak in Auckland in the 80s, uh, after that, it was there was a mass campaign with a, a, an older type of vaccine, and we didn't see group A in New Zealand again. And then we had the horrific B. Uh, so most of our disease was group B, with a little bit of maybe a bit of C. And then B's been beaten back to a point where we had about it was about 60-40 B and C. So really, those were your main ones. And they still are. And I think it still looks you know, a little bit 60-40-ish there. And what we've seen recently is the emergence, and this is actually a global issue of a particular type of W, uh, and this is the strain that's caused most of the cases in an outbreak in Northland, for example. So it's a particularly, um, and it's a slightly the presentation of disease that's been caused by the strains is a
0: little bit atypical. It's a little bit different than um, what we might normally see. Can you tell me what that looks like? Obviously, the way the disease presents is different to every individual. But if W is presenting quite differently to what the medical professionals are used to seeing or aware of for B, mm. is that, how, what does it look like? And is that proving difficult to actually diagnose?
1: I think it is posing challenges for diagnosis, but but um, I think Emma will be best placed to, to describe the, the differences there, but yes,
0: it has been challenging. Mm-hmm. Now we do have Dr. Emma Best that will be interviewed as part of the podcast series who can give us some details about all of the the different types of strains in the presentation. So if you are listening to this, jump on and have a look at for Dr. Emma Best in the podcast series. So, coming back to the vaccines from your area of expertise, when you look at how a vaccine is made and who it is presented to, are there particular groups that should be looking at being vaccinated for ACWY and B?
1: I think we come back to those uh, our high risk populations. So, if you've you know if if the children who are under five. Uh, they would be the the, the priority group mm-hmm. followed by the adolescents and then again, you know as we said all age groups can be affected so ideally uh ideally you know you want to cover uh you want to cover a person and give them protection uh, throughout say their their childhood and adolescence you you'd probably need to look at Um, vaccinating when they're very young in infancy to take them through that high risk period and then probably you need to look at giving them a booster dose at the beginning of their adolescence Mm -hmm. uh, to, to take them through the rest of that period. I mean if you were really going to think about covering somebody as best you could, that would probably be the strategy.
0: But none of them give you lifelong immunity, is that correct?
1: Well not lifelong protection so Say if you were a, a, an infant and you had uh, a two- or three-dose primary course, you wouldn't need to go and start that again later. You could just have a booster dose because you, you do have a a memory. You oh, will probably right. have a lifelong memory uh, that you just need to give a bit of a poke mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now and again. Uh, get it to wake up and produce some more antibodies that you can have uh, at the ready
0: uh, for the next few years. One of the things you mentioned previously was about the the changing face of what diseases present when over history. Is it a case that as we fight one, another emerges and becomes a lot more prevalent within society? Are we fighting a losing battle as we we we? Well, I guess uh, I guess uh, are we losing the battle? It is definitely a man
1: versus microbe, and we do see replacement uh, of. Uh, um, not just uh, uh, different serotypes, perhaps of that organism, but also different uh, different organisms coming to take the place. And I guess uh, the best that we can do is to try and eliminate the the bugs that actually cause the worst of the disease, uh, and not worry too much about the the bugs that aren't causing the disease. Because we all, we you know we have a, a microbiome, and we have to live in harmony with our bacteria. <laughs> so. When we are targeting uh, bacteria with vaccines we're really looking at though that that's the bacteria that cause and the viruses that, that cause devastating disease um, sometimes other nasty ones will come in uh, and we need that's when we need to look at targeting them other times it might be more benign uh, bugs that move in which um, which aren't such a concern. So it's not always the case, but it is a consideration when we're, we're yeah, we are having a, an ongoing battle.
0: <laughs> now, we've talked a lot about meningococcal disease. Pneumococcal disease is a completely different story, obviously, because it's been on the vaccination schedule for a little bit of time. Can you tell us what we've seen over the years with the introduction of pneumococcal?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so so when we uh, when we were coming to the end of our horrific meningococcal epidemic, one of the decisions was uh, we needed to do something, uh, you know, about the pneumococcal disease, which was a much bigger problem at the time, and we had a terrible uh, burden,
0: hospitalisation burden with young children, because it's not just the disease itself; it presents and provides um, long term impacts on hearing loss and things mm. like that. So, yes, pneumococcal
1: is not just meningitis. It's invasive disease, which means you know, that the infections invaded the body beyond where it originally uh, infected it. So it can be a whole list of diseases there. Um, otitis media or ear infections that are serious enough to get to hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, pneumonia, it's a quite a ma- major contributor to pneumonia hospitalization. So these are serious... Illnesses. So in 2008, we introduced the uh, pneumococcal vaccine, and very quickly, the invasive, the most serious tip of the iceberg uh, really started to become obliterated. Um, And since we've had a program of this, of of a pneumococcal vaccine, we've also seen uh, the terrible. Uh, inequities in terms of ethnic and deprivation, inequities and burden of the ear infections, hospitalisations for ear infections and pneumonia are reduced to the point where some of those you don't see a difference between, uh, say, uh, New Zealand, European and the Maori and Pacific. They've, they've come down so far that they're looking a lot more even now, and also for a whole range of other diseases which are very serious. That is a thought. To be Some of them thought to be caused by pneumococcal disease also um, being significantly reduced. So it's had a, um, a huge impact on a range of diseases. So that's a really good news story.
0: And, uh, so some really positive news for pneumococcal in New Zealand, mm, which is mm. something that we could hope to see at some point for meningococcal. That's right, yes. One of your areas of expertise is vaccine safety. Now when we talk about safety is that with regard to localized reactions or is it a bigger issue what does vaccine safety actually cover
1: Oh vaccine safety is such a big a big topic area I guess when you think about vaccine safety you think about first of all the the common uh, local reactions for example sore arms are probably the most common reaction to a vaccine we know it's a reaction to the vaccine it's pretty obvious you put the injection in there it's gone a bit red it might might get a bit swollen and it it hurts it might hurt a little bit it might hurt a bit more or actually might be so painful you can't move your arm for a day so certainly those are um, expected and really not Necessarily a bad thing because you actually want some action at the injection site. So uh, having a sore arm indicates that there's a little bit of action going on. It's really m- most uh, most of that will be your own your own immune system uh, having to a do wee it's party end. there. That's right, and and that's normal. That's fine. Um, also, you get the um, systemic, like so fever, is probably the most common. Uh,
0: reaction. Now, so almost a little bit of the, the virus, like people who have got the flu shot, talk about getting a bad case of the flu straight after.
1: More likely they brood some other disease, but yet you can still get, you can get a fever, of course, after a flu vaccine or after pretty much any vaccine. Um, and depending on the vaccine, that if it's caused by the vaccine, because of course, people, there are fevers going on in the background all the time. So how many of those fevers were caused by the vaccine? And not all of them are. So vaccine fevers tend to occur at a particular time, you know, timing after the vaccine. So after, say, a meningococcal vaccine, a vaccine-associated fever is going to probably occur, will almost certainly occur within that that same day. For example, if you had uh, a fever that came on three days later, you'd think, well, that's probably not the vaccine. So there's those sorts of... um, Events again, they're, they're relatively minor and usually don't cause too much bother and just show that the immune system is, is doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get into adverse events following immunization, and those are the things that uh, any event that's adverse mm-hmm. that you don't want uh, that follows immunization. And so that could be a car accident, that could be. Um, falling down the stairs—that could be—you uh, get—you um, get an infection.
0: So how do you link some of those things that are beyond your control back to the vaccine? And obviously, oh, in the that's reporting where all process. The,
1: <laughs> that's right. Well, that's where that's where all the the uh, research. That's where the vast body of research comes in. So. Um, Of course, you've got your background of events that are occurring and then you've got your events that uh, have been triggered by a vaccine. And by and large, the type of research that addresses those uh, tends to be large, apart from the vaccine trials where they probably randomise somebody to get a vaccine, someone not to get a vaccine. Looking at really big populations, uh, perhaps with tens or hundreds of thousands, some studies have over a million individuals because, you know, we've got these cool computers these days and we can do these really um, fantastic big studies by following huge populations. Not every country can do these, but there are a number that can, including New Zealand. And really what you do is you compare events in the vaccinated with the events in the unvaccinated. Um, and that's generally uh, how that's done. So you've got very big populations and you um, have the ability to detect some quite rare things. So we know uh, with, with these vaccines what the risk is for serious events. For example, I think with, with any vaccine, there's a risk of anaphylaxis, which is a, a life-threatening allergic reaction. And we know for any given vaccine that the risk of that occurring is about, and for most of it's about the order of about one per million, um, which is why people are asked to stay for 20 minutes or so after the vaccine, just to make sure that that doesn't There's happen. That, and if mm. it does, it's treated and, and, and at, at the time immediately. So by and large, um, I think we're fairly confident about what the risks for serious
0: events are using approaches like that. Mm-hmm. And so vaccine safety and vaccine effectiveness are two very different things. Safety and effectiveness.
1: I mean, yes, I think you tend to measure them in a similar way, again, by comparing the vaccinated with the unvaccinated so effectiveness uh, and we've done a number of, of effectiveness studies in new zealand uh, with these vaccines actually and we have, we basically compare the uh, attack rate that, the, the and the people who've received a vaccine with the attack rate and the people who haven't but one of the sort of the the, the challenging things is once you introduce a vaccine such as a pneumococcal vaccine or a meningococcal vaccine, and the nature of these vaccines, you affect the disease in the whole population, herd immunity, Mm -hmm. people have heard the term herd or or community immunity, and you actually start eliminating the the bug from the population. So uh, even if you're not vaccinated, you're protected, Mm -hmm. um, which is... uh, which is great, also makes it quite hard to actually do some of the studies in the end when you run out of disease. (laughs) But that's a good
0: thing. So thinking about the outbreak of meningococcal W in Northland that we saw in December 2018, it had obviously been happening in the lead-up months or even longer in the lead-up to the time that the outbreak or epidemic was actually called. Can you tell us from your perspective what you know about the the cases of meningococcal W and the vaccine campaign that was launched as a result to to try and stem that spread of disease?
1: As far as I understand, um, it was certainly evident that Northland had a problem uh, and that this problem was caused by this particular uh, type of, of meningococcus. Uh, and even though there were cases in other parts of New Zealand, uh, it didn't really uh, fulfil the requirement for a intervention, and in Northland it did. So, the, so what were
0: the requirements? How do you Well measure? You really
1: look. You need to define define. Uh, uh, I guess an outbreak or or in this an, an epidemic, uh, as opposed to a few sporadic cases, uh, and also the rate per hundred thousand. And in Northland, they had a much higher rate per hundred thousand people than the rest anywhere else in the country. Uh, So, you know, even though there might have been cases elsewhere, Northland was clearly a hotspot. So the uh, vaccination, a mass campaign was launched. Now, to the best of my knowledge, um, it hasn't managed
0: to reach uh, as much of the population as they would have liked Mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. And is that because they weren't able to vaccinate or everyone that they had in their target, or that there are other factors at play. They
1: couldn't. Get, they haven't managed to to get uh, as much of their target as they would have liked. Uh, so I, I'm not quite sure what, their target, I'm not sure what the target was, but it's a lot. Le- you know, they've they've not reached as much as they were like. Um, it was a difficult time of year as it well. Was a, it was really a really hard. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that play there. I should imagine, and of course, some of these populations are quite hard to reach. So um, it has been done up there before successfully. Uh, in the past, there was a Group C mm-hmm. outbreak in. Um, in Northland, which necessitated a mass campaign just a few years ago in the um, in the earlier two thousands, and and I believe that was that was very successful. So at the moment, to the best of my knowledge, um, they haven't had any cases in any of the vaccinated. In fact, I think they might have only had a case um, this Since year. Since The immunisation yeah, program. Yeah, so I need to out. check that. But. Uh, but you I mean you don't have to vaccinate everybody to eliminate the spug from the community.
0: Um But there's obviously going to be a threshold of people there will that be. you will need to, to reach. You do, mm. you do, yeah. So in that case, if you're if you're vaccinating a particular percentage of the population or proportion of the population, are we going to see this disease drop completely in that area or we're not actually going to be addressing meningococcal W in other areas of New Zealand. Correct, uh, the meningococcal uh, bug can be
1: eliminated from the population by a good, uh, a good campaign, and that's been seen in other parts of the world uh, with um, with these vaccines, and very dramatically in Africa with uh, meningococcal A. It was eliminate the, the the actual bug was eliminated from. Uh, the The populations receiving the vaccine it was very dramatic,
0: so what would it take in New Zealand to actually eliminate meningococcal from our communities?
1: Um I think you need to really attain um a reasonable level of coverage um, in your younger population and that's
0: so for protection example, through vaccination
1: yeah yeah, in the uk they they uh, uh, years ago uh, they had a, a terrible Group C epidemic, which they addressed with the vaccine, and really Group C disappeared as a problem, as, as has been the case in other countries that have introduced a Group C vaccine into their programme. You can really eliminate that as a problem in the population. Um, and in New Zealand, it's been it's been difficult in that we've had B and C going on. Uh, so that's quite a... <laughs>
0: That's quite a challenge because that's two different vaccines. Yeah. So looking at where we go from here, um, I don't know whether the government is considering funding any of the vaccines or whether they're just looking at the outbreaks and addressing each of those outbreaks. What would it take to actually look at a universal vaccination programme?
1: It's just simple. It's one word. It's called money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, the there's a expert advisory group to to Pharmac, who of course make the money decisions and and they've recommended meningococcal vaccine um, for some time but not with the highest priority as some of the other vaccines that we've we've seen so for example recently we have introduced the rotavirus vaccine and the varicella vaccine uh, because those diseases have been a, an enormous burden. So we've got we've got those now. So I guess the next vaccine, um, if we're going to have another vaccine, the obvious choice is meningococcal vaccine. Now, so we're slowly which,
0: climbing up that priority we, list.
1: We're getting it. Well, I think we are. And um, of course, it, it also depends on your disease burden. Now, meningococcal disease is
0: a horrific, horrific disease, uh, but quite rare. <laughs> Now, talking burden of disease, that's a phrase that not many people understand. Can you just unpack that for us?
1: Um, I guess when we talk about burden, we just talk about the, uh, the, the the numbers of cases and 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 the suffering that goes on, really. So the so like the the, the word morbidity. So that is things like uh, uh, visits to sick enough to go to the doctor, uh, to be hospitalised, to get pneumonia, to to need some kind of intervention. All of those um, signs and symptoms of having these diseases.
0: So it's not just the burden on the health care system for the cost of all of those treatments, but it's also the rehabilitation and the cost mm. of long-term care for survivors of mm. the disease.
1: Oh, huge. And and the, on the individuals and, and the families, the time off work for the families, the, the ongoing, the learning problems, the, this, this just goes on and on if you sit down and start writing the potential uh, long-term problems. That might be associated with some of these diseases, the lists can get very long and you keep thinking of
0: something else. <laughs> Has that ever been presented to government as part of a um, request for higher priority? It's, it's I mean it's part of the the
1: cost benefit is as part of the essential uh, information that goes into the decision making. Um, and and so yeah, it it it, it is in the mix. And I guess uh it, it all comes to how much disease have we got, and uh what's it costing us, as well as the um i guess you know the societal um implications as well mm-hmm. with a disease like meninge i guess uh I guess we've got you know we've got this her- horrific disease, meningococcal disease, and we have some really effective vaccines so um. It would be really nice to be able to to have these vaccines um, more widely available to uh, to a larger mm-hmm. uh, section of the population.
0: So that are you saying accessible in terms of the cost of those vaccines mm. or the availability yes, and yeah. funding of those vaccines?
1: I think both. I mean they're very expensive vaccines. So I'm you know when I'm thinking about this, I'm I'm, I'm sort of conflicted. Uh, where to to buy these things personally? There's not that you know not so many people that can afford them, uh, which immediately has this huge uh, um, inequity about it. Uh, and the only way to uh, remove that inequity is to fund them. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it comes down to putting a price on a human it, life, doesn't it, it? It does. And I'm very very glad it's not my decision
0: because that's a very, very those are very very difficult decisions to make. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for your insight and expertise on this area. It's been a really interesting conversation and I'm sure that there's going to be lots of questions that come from this as well. Um, So I really appreciate you being here and joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Now, this is part of a series of podcast episodes by the Meningitis Foundation to raise awareness of meningitis, septicemia, pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. For more information, you can go to our website at www.meningitis.org.nz or our Facebook page. If you just type in the Meningitis Foundation, you should be able to find us. We look forward to having you join us in the next episode. Bye for now.